0: This episode, I'm joined by Simone Kotva, who is a researcher in the Faculty of Theology at the University of Oslo. In this episode, we discuss her book, Effort and Grace, on the spiritual exercise of philosophy, alongside discussions on French spiritualism, Henri Bergson, and the intersection of theology, philosophy, and spiritual practice. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast or gain access to some exclusive content, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Simone Kotfer, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a
0: pleasure. Uh, We are going to be discussing your book, which was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury, Uh, Effort and Grace on the Spiritual Exercise of Philosophy, which is a book tackling the very precarious intersection between spiritual exercise, theology, philosophy, and a host of thinkers such as Alain, Simone Veil, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Félix Ravisson, uh, Deborah, the main thinkers that you're touching upon, people who are somewhat um, find themselves perhaps stuck in this peculiar place, which is, um, you know... <sighs> Often with the philosophy, especially with philosophy and theology, people often find themselves being forced into one or the other camp and it becomes a very difficult thing. And then when you add exercises into the mix, it becomes even more confused. <laughs> so your book was tackling something that, uh, yeah, it, it's a difficult subject. But before we uh, jump in with a discussion on effort and grace, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how this uh, how this book came about.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I did my PhD in Cambridge in the UK, and the book is is uh, the result of that doctoral work that I was doing. And um, at the moment, I'm working in Oslo at the University of Oslo, the Faculty of Theology, where I'm at an interdisciplinary environmental humanities project. And perhaps we can talk a little bit during the conversation about how this work ties into ecology, because that may not be um, evident from spiritual exercises and philosophy. So, yeah, that, that's where I am at the moment. And I also teach an MPhil module at the University of Cambridge, the Faculty of Divinity there.
0: Wow, that all makes sense. I'm very intrigued as to how ecology ties in, but I can somewhat see that. I mean, that's a yeah, I think the the link between spirituality and ecology is becoming ever clearer. So, um, yeah, I'm interested. I'm interested. But before we jump in with all these uh, different topics, I, of course, have to ask you the Hermetics question. You can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Uh, Who do you pick?
1: Gosh, I'll I'll pick um, a few that uh, have to do with the book, I think, rather Mm -hmm. than kind of ideally. Uh, I just, that was the way I was thinking when you asked the question. So I would really like to see a conversation between uh, Bergson, who is in the book, and we'll probably talk a bit about him, and his sister, Mm -hmm. um, Mina Moina. uh, And um, I'd also like to see uh, uh, his sister's um, husband there as well, McGregor Mathers.
0: Now, if I'm McGregor Mathers now, if I'm right, Bergson wasn't himself directly linked with the spirituality that was going on today, but these two other family members most certainly were. So Gregor Mathers, I recognize the name was, I hope I'm getting this right, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? Oh, yes. He, yeah. yeah. And his sister was with Gurdjieff, I, th- I believe. Or was that his like cousin? He had a loose connection with the spiritualist Gurdjieff, also in France at the time. So it, do you see in this sort of familial triangle going on, do you see that really, a, probably when they used to sit down for dinner together, a discussion between... <laughs> you know what where is where are the lines between philosophy and spirituality
1: yeah and also magic i mean that's something which i bring up at the end of my book and that i'm working more intensely on at the moment um i think that i want to see that conversation because i i fear it might be quite an acrimonious one and and a very sort of revealing one um and also the lines between uh the roles of different genders in that movement of the turn of the century um yeah, because we have Bergson's sister, who's hugely uh, influential, but actually very underrated in the literature. Uh, so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see that meeting. I mean, we can maybe talk a bit more about what it means in terms of um, the book and so on. But there is this apparent contradiction between Bergson and uh Spiritism, sort of spiritualism of of French philosophy that I write about, and then spiritism or engaging with spirits, actual spirits, table wrapping, and so forth. But actually, there, there were quite close connections between people who worked with spirits, not necessarily spiritists, but you know the Hermetic Order, Order of the Golden Dawn, were uh, engaging with spirits in different ways. And then French philosophers writing about the movement of spirit in the cosmos and the kind of the movement of spirit through human bodies and minds, um, and and I would really like to to think more about that relationship at some point
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's always interesting to me the fact that uh one of the key differences between at least the the appreciation of certain so we say, just thinkers, between philosophy spirituality and then magic is that the latter two spirituality and magic have definitely been far more uh i have to choose my words carefully here, but just accepting of of women you know women never had that hesitation which philosophy had I don't know if you'd agree with that.
1: I, I don't think I would, actually. No? I think okay. there's there's an awful lot of misogyny also in in uh, Western occultism, especially. I think it's very different in different cultural settings. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're looking at Western occultism and hermeticism, which is the context for Bergson and his sister and McGregor Mathers, then it's certainly quite misogy- uh, misogynistic, which is why uh, Mina is a really important person in that context.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well... I'll uh, <laughs> I'll consider myself wrong in in that instance. It's just, I, I guess hm but all I meant really by that was that throughout the history of magic I think uh female figures have come to I don't know, come to the top as much as as men often have with figures such as Plavatsky or the Salzman or various figures I think that have Yeah,
1: no, I I, I agree, I agree with you. Um I was I think I was just thinking about the fact that even though there have been so many influential female figures mm-hmm. and especially in the revival of the modern revival of witchcraft, which is female led mm-hmm. um, still the Texts we tend to refer to as like canonical and occultism are typically the ones authored by by male figures, um, and that's a shame. And there is there is still this tendency to sort of um, consider many influential female figures like Blavatsky uh, with more derision than male figures. And I don't think that that's particularly justified. Um, yeah, but I mean you're right, absolutely. There are far more uh, many more important female figures in Western occultism. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm yeah no i don't think the blavatsky uh criticism is justified either she you know the 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 common criticism is that that she's uh lazy just because she says oh there was these tibetan you know masters that i met and then everyone says well you've got no proof for that and then but actually there's 101 other male figures who also do that rudolf steiner right it's like oh well, i looked at the akashic records okay well where are they (laughs) right it does the same thing anyway um so this French spiritualism, which really underlines at least the beginning of your book and is is sort of a current throughout, I mean, you've mentioned that there's many differences here. I mean, how would you define this French spiritualism? Or uh, am I using the correct words at all there?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's called French spiritualism. And so spiritualism as a concept has been around since the early modern period. It was a way of referring to a worldview that did not accept a reductivist materialist framework. So a framework that postulated that everything could be explained um, through you know, the natural laws of matter, if you like. That's the kind of simplified version. And so the philosopher really famously in the early modern period who comes along and uh, has an alternative view is Descartes. Now, this isn't like a sui generis view, like he's building in a very long tradition. But Descartes is the one who um, gives birth to the idea that there is such a thing as spiritualism. So it doesn't really exist as a concept before the early modern period. So, yeah, it's it's an idea that um, the world cannot be explained by matter alone. And when we try to do so, we end up with like bad ethics, a bad understanding of what... Um, Firstly, a human being is that's usually it's kind of anthropocentric, but then kind of also uh, other creatures and just in general, like life. Um, And uh, what happens is that at the beginning of the um, 19th century, there was a revival uh, of spiritualist ideas. And the context here is new. So like a 100 years have passed since sort of Descartes, as it were, and we've had all of the 18th century. What happens during the 18th century is that there is this intense interest in what's uh, called or becoming called psychology. And it takes this particular form in France, and the form it takes is uh, canonically manifested in Condillac, who's very influenced by Locke. Um, and so they are empiricists of of the mind, of the, of the human psyche, and they try and explain it according to laws um, and sort of they model the human being's inner life uh, on mechanistic laws now that's a simplified version I'm actually quite a big fan of Condillac, but basically this is this is the idea that you can explain even the psyche according to these laws um, so at the beginning of the at the opening of the 19th century this was really popular it was basically the kind of um, state philosophy of the French Revolution if that makes sense like it was the mm-hmm. it was a philosophy that was really popular that every kind of um, political movement has to have the philosophy it draws on and that it supports um, and it was supporting a very kind of kondiak influenced philosophy uh called um in english translation ideology actually because it had to do with ideas and and so on it has nothing to do with the way we use ideology today. But anyway, the, the logs they were called. Um, and so uh, this view tended to downplay uh, the idea that there was something like spirit or will that just kind of doesn't really have a mechanistic explanation. Um, and at the beginning of the 19th century, the number of philosophers who were just dissatisfied with this kind of uh, politically driven state philosophy, um, which was seen to be part of uh, a quite a kind of overly rationalist um, agenda. Uh, and so they started looking uh, for alternatives and they typically looked to German philosophy for alternatives. And what they found there was a more openness to these older ideas about the will, about desire, um, being sui generis and you know just inexplicable in terms of laws. And they, they weren't ridiculous re- they weren't sort of rejecting empiricist explanations but they were trying to say that that model of how a human being works is only partial and mm. that we need another complementary model to understand the sort of full picture and possibly even many more models right so the person i've been i write about in the book who is really important here is called um well, he, he had a very long name, but let's call him just Mende Biron, uh, which is uh, his, his taken surname. And that's how we tend to refer to him as Mende Biron or Biron. So Biron uh, argued that there were uh, complementary models for understanding how a human being worked. And he was a big fan of empiricism, especially when he was younger. But he sort of came to realize that it it, it uh, painted itself into a corner when it tried to explain everything by these mechanistic rules. And so he opens up to uh, basically German philosophy uh, and the ideas of of a will that comes out of nothing and really that you are the origin of a lot of your own um, ideas and impulses. But At the same time, he is incredibly rigorous when it comes to the empiricist aspect of his thought. And so when you read him, it's this really interesting mix of, on the one hand, like a an almost like obsession with kind of categorizing the states of of your mind and like how everything works, but at the same time, this openness to the will and to spirit. Um, And that together, at the beginning of his thought, he calls this a kind of twofold law that a human being is both kind of Uh, seen through an empiricist lens and then also through this, what becomes called a spiritualist lens, although he doesn't actually use that concept. Um, And then later on in his life, he becomes more interested because he was also a Freemason. We can talk about that. He becomes more interested in what might call sort of a universalist uh, mysticism. And so he adds a sort of third life, as he calls it, a kind of third model for understanding how a human being works. And that one is much more focused on um, the... Uh, what we might call intuition, the things that come to us from outside. So if the kind of the German aspect here of, of uh, how to explain a human being at the 19th century was very much to do with the things that come from within us that are kind of ours, but we can't really explain them through these reductive um naturalistic laws, then the, the mystical or spiritual life for Biran was about what comes to us from outside and influences us, such as, yeah, as I said, intuition is one way of thinking about it. He, he compares it to Socrates' daemon, for instance, and of course, the Holy Spirit uh, and so on. So that's sort of what uh, is driving spiritualism in France. It's a reaction to, on the one hand, mat- materialism um and then on the other hand also to the german philosophy that is influencing it because it also sees that that kind of framework can veer too much uh away from uh the empiricism of the psyche which it very much as a tradition upholds and of course at the end of the 19th century it gives uh, birth to uh, a philosophy in Bergson which is very close to phenomenology and then influences very very strongly uh, French phenomenology at the beginning of the 20th century so I don't know if that was uh no, too much or too no, little no, no. But-
0: I think it was uh, it was just right I mean it, it actually ties a lot of this together in the sense that I could now almost read your text now I'll take a risk here but I could almost read the text now as a hermetic text in the sense of <laughs> the above and the below with the below I don't want to um uh, make the, make these terms synonymous, but with the blow in relation to effort, in relation to will, psychological laws, even going back to Descartes with the idea that some animals are literally just machines uh, and these inbuilt evolutionary laws. And then the problem of, well, what about grace, the above, something being afforded to you completely outside of any mechanical laws and between these two positions how does that work so would you know in that in that sense putting all this together your is, is your text like a a mediation like a a philosophically hermetic mediation between these twos but with a a primacy on the philosophy a,
1: a mediation between two what sorry uh, bet,
0: between I, effort and grace between the above oh, and below right. but with that philosophical focus
1: yeah, I think I see spiritual exercise as the mediation there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, philosophy would be the mediation if it's understood as a practice. I guess mm-hmm. that's that's my starting point. So I take inspiration from um, Pierre Ador's work and also the way Foucault reads um, Adore, But I also try and give an alternative story of spiritual exercise in the way that they present it, um, because there are some limitations to how they do so. Uh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you What do you see as their key limitations?
1: Mostly, it's an it's an enf- overemphasis on on one side of what goes into spiritual exercise to philosophy as practice. So uh, Ador, um, and then Foucault after him, because he's he's relying very heavily on Ador's presentation of what philosophy or spiritual exercise is and what it could be. Ador was very focused on Stoicism and on Stoic exercises. He does write about. Other Hellenistic schools, and he does have a very deep sense for um, what I was just referring to—it's kind of the third wheel um, in in the model that spiritualism is is espousing. But he does present uh, spiritual exercise as an effort of the will to attend and focus on specific things in order to prepare itself for hardships in advance of of the event. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is certainly one aspect of what spiritual exercises are about. So Adur is relying quite heavily on Ignatius and Ignatius of Leola's spiritual exercises. Now that particular book, now we're not going to talk about Loyola as a figure, I mean, we can, but he's more complex. But that particular book, which is what Aldo uses as his reference point, is kind of notorious for overemphasizing the will and for overemphasizing effort. That's because it's a book of meditation mm-hmm. and of things that you do in order to basically predispose yourself so that you can have an experience of spontaneous Grace coming to you. Mm-hmm. But basically, spiritual exercise is a training program. It's a bit like the exercises you do so that you can run that amazing race, at, like with no effort, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really get to that last bit. Um, if you read Leola's uh, diaries, so you see that he's in fact much more kind of personally invested in in the grace aspect. But the exercise manual is is a manual for meditation. And so what Ardo ends up doing is he models when when he compares philosophy to spiritual exercise in his famous book, um, Spiritual Exercises from Socrates to Foucault in the English later edition and translation. Uh, he, he essentially equates spiritual exercises with meditation. And of course, meditation is an effort of focusing the will and doing certain things, visualizing a lot of things as well. Um, this gets taken up also uh, later by um, the literary critic, whose name suddenly escapes me. Um, anyway, we'll uh, come back to that. Um, Yeah, so he models it on meditation. And the result of that is that contemplation, which is the other aspect or kind of double motion in spiritual exercises is not forgotten. It's not left out of Ador, but it just isn't given um, a real sort of systematic place in the exposition. So he's interested in contemplation when it comes to Plotinus, for instance, Again, in his book on the one and Plotinus, and most of that book is in a way about contemplation, but he sort of fudges it a bit and equates it, uh, meditation, a lot with a lot of the contemplative exercises, and he also tends to present contemplation. In effortful ways. So even when he's writing about contemplation, you'll say, like, it's it's still an effort of the ever-vigilant spirit and, and these things. And mm-hmm. that's that's fairly um actually unusual when it comes to the tradition, because contemplation is typically the easing of effort at the time when there is no effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he does sort of mention that epicurean ataraxia is equally as important as the stoic's emphasis on will but then he doesn't actually give it that place in his presentation um, so that was one of the things that I found curious. And I thought that it it had this, uh, this unintended uh, rebound effect when it came to Foucault and then later like Schlotterdeich more recently taking these ideas up in that their idea of spiritual exercise seems wholly based on meditation. There's mm-hmm. basically no contemplation left in there. Whereas there is quite a lot actually in, in Ador, but then further down the line, because Ador doesn't really give it a place in the story, it just becomes lost and forgotten. And then contemplation becomes this sort of... Um, uh, vaguely defined relaxation thing <laughs> that the proper philosophers don't deal with. And I wanted to address that because I felt that there was uh, quite a lot of interesting things there to say about uh, Western philosophy's disdain for passivity in general um, and for you know th- that whole discussion which has a lot to do with disdain for this, that which has been figured passively such as nature, particular kinds of bodies, usually female bodies and so on, weakness, you know, why is it that we're so afraid of a weakness in Western philosophy? And so, um, yeah, that that was part of the uh, unhappiness I had, um, not least because, final point, is that Ador does describe the sort of point of spiritual exercises as a greater attunement to what he calls nature, sort of the environment, the surrounding world. And he hints that this is, this is the point of contemplation. And he even uh, the point at which contemplation takes over and he even is quite unhappy with how Foucault has interpreted his own work and says that i don't think this emphasis on uh, self uh technologies of the self really does justice to the spiritual exercise tradition uh and so what i uh, what i've created in my work is a pairing of technologies of the self, technique de soi, with technologies of ecstasy, uh, technique de l'extase, which is a concept that uh, Messiah Eliade comes up with around the same time, actually, as, as Ador, to describe um, these more uh, self-effacing aspects of spiritual exercises that you get uh, in what we call mysticism. Mm-hmm. So I want to bring those two together, basically.
0: Mm-hmm. So... I mean, it seems here then that you're dealing with, um, historically you're dealing with the the problem of a, of a contradiction, spontaneity versus will. Okay, so how, how can something be spontaneous if you're, you know, a lot of people sort of like think about forcing a prayer out. Yeah.
1: So
0: <laughs> how can you allow, like not even allow grace if you're afforded, grace by its very definition is something you're afforded. So therefore the spontaneity of it isn't really down to your control. So how can this contradiction between, willed effort and spontaneous spontaneous grace and these two sides of the spirit and of the the effort the evolutionary the laws coincide in this sense and throughout history are you then seeing it as we enter into the sort of default secular world view of today and perhaps from post-world war ii onwards we could roughly say that they've tried to retain that spiritual side of things but equally askew it in a certain sense so it still has that sort of um, anthropological or like uh, anthropocentric centric focus, right? So it's still like, okay, it's the spirit, but we're still in control. So like, that's the mistake we've been making.
1: Yeah, I think the mistake that people make continuously, and I don't think it's just a Western story, I think it's something that is sort of inevitable, um, hmm. is that we, in, when it comes to spiritual exercises and to the practice of philosophy, which is searching for something that is, outside of ourselves, right? Is that we continually forget to model it on um, relationality, right? So the way I think about the relation between effort and grace is as relationality. Um, It's a paradox, but it's the paradox of relating to another human person or another creature in that in order to have a conversation with someone, you have to put forward an effort And put your best foot forward, even you have to possibly make quite a bit of an effort if you Mm. want to have a establish a good working relationship. But once you've said your bit, you can't then coerce the other person into saying what you want them to say, Mm. that would not be establishing a good relationship. That's I mean, that's just coercion, right? Um, Then you have to wait, and you have to be open and you have to listen. Um, And that's grace. Mm. And so I see the two working together in that way. And I think that part of the the story of a kind of failure or tragedy in in Western thought that Adore is very interested in, for instance, is that we have, um, using the we kind of loosely and sketchily, but there has been a loss of the relational model behind um, the, the very activity of inquiring after knowledge. Uh, and Adore is writing from a psychological perspective, right? I mean, this was is still quite accepted in in philosophy that when we're talking about like socrates's daemon this is simply a metaphor um and i don't know like adore would say that it's probably still a metaphor but that the metaphor still it it describes something very important about the activity and that is one of speaking and then hearing right of giving out and receiving Um, and so what i'm trying to kind of do with my work is to write about philosophy of spiritual exercise as if those metaphors were worth uh, living by right Um, and uh, that's where i'm very interested in practices of magic for instance because there you have a very different model particularly in traditional magic um so different traditional societies and their practices and the ones that uh, are still around um, in the west is that you you instead of having a psychological model you have a spirit model Mm-hmm. Where it is the subject, the sort of the practitioner actually speaking to something outside of themselves. And then that uh, dialogical relational model is much more evident. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so what I see when it comes to relationship between something like spiritualism, which tried very much to model philosophy again on spiritual exercises by emphasizing this, as I was saying, third wheel, like the thing that comes from outside and comes in, um, is is that relational model.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I ask? Are you a, are you a spiritual practitioner yourself?
1: Yeah. So I don't like writing about things I have no empirical experience of. <laughs> if if I'm um so so yeah i do practice everything that i write about I'd say and if and if there's something that i have no experience of i would i would try and make that very clear
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay okay so i guess the big one big historical question with respect to your book is where do you think this and we sort of touched on a little bit a little bit but where do you you primarily see this aversion to passivity to because when you mentioned about um you know Empathy with the relationship of having to put your best foot forward. It seems that the problem that a lot of people are entering into is they want to, you could sort of, I guess, throughout history, you could see those three things as the same but in different contexts. So, like God's will, nature for Hado, or empathy. People want to enter into them, but they want to enter into like accordance with God's will, but on their terms, right? Yes. Or like empathy, but on my terms. So it's like, all right, I'll agree with you, but. You know they sort of want to reel it back and try i don't know almost like a ga- like a spiritual gaslighting or something like that. <laughs> um where do you see that aversion to you know that true passivity of you know i guess which really could be defined as we would now see it as a vulnerability as a as, as you said you mentioned a weakness as that i guess conflation of openness and passivity to vulnerability and weakness where do you see that's coming from
1: it comes from many different places. I mean, one one way of deriving the history of it, and here I'm thinking alongside other thinkers writing about similar things, So, like Jane Bennett is someone at the moment who's trying to mm-hmm. think about a, a way of refiguring passivity so it has a place in the story we tell about agency, so it's not just about like doing my mm-hmm. will and imposing my will upon the world and kind of being this sort of hero. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, Jane Bennett and also Agamben is somebody who thinks about this a lot, uh, and his idea of inoperativity, uh, which I think is is helpful, although maybe maybe a kind of um, a small story, I guess, in a bigger context. But yeah, so different stories we can tell. One of them is, um, as I said at the beginning, the conflation between. Uh, passivity and like nature and certain bodies that were aligned with nature, particularly female bodies. I'm thinking about Carolyn Merchant's book On the Death of Nature Mm -hmm. that came out in the late 70s. That book was really important because one of the things it showed was that uh, one of the reasons why there was a denigration of passivity in the early modern period that became particularly... It's not like it never was there before, but it became very much part of... Both a metaphysical and political agenda was because um, there had been this like bifurcation in how we viewed the world, and so uh, uh, spirit was all active and was all male, and passivity was all female and was all inactive, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you have this bifurcation that just sort of plays itself out all through the 18th and 19th centuries, and you can map anything on that, right? Like. The good man, the bad woman, a kind of evil uh, uh, nature, good, uh, immaterial spirit. And then you can map race onto that. I mean, you just map anything onto that. This sort of dualistic thinking. I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, And so I think in general, dualistic thinking in whichever cultural context is typically bad news, right? Mm -hmm. So we need more paradoxical thinking. It's not an either-or story, uh, but nor is it a kind of you know a a soup a soup story. There are distinctions and there are different types of experience, um, but there are degrees, and it's not a not a there isn't sort of a clear line anywhere. Uh, and so dualistic thinking, I guess, would be my my response to, like, why is it that we have this aversion? I think we only have an aversion to passivity if we think of it as radically opposed to something else, when the when the reality is a bit different. And so Jane Bennett is someone who's interested in middles, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and the theologians that I was trained by are typically also interested in middles. And I think paradox is a way also of trying to express the way in which, in order to to sort of think clearly we have to accept that we are actually in the middle we're not really on the on an either or that um and that when we speak there is a little bit of activity a little bit of passivity always uh as there is in any relationship that's why i brought in that that um analogy i think it's easier than just saying paradox because paradox sounds like it's something incomprehensible and i'm not saying like i have I have the answers, but 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 it's at the same time it's quite pragmatic. Like it's an everyday thing that we experience. It's an everyday form of paradox. It's a sort of the mysticism of of the uh, quotidian encounter. I guess. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So from from that uh, f- sort of false dualistic form of thinking, it's fairly clear that that's where a uh, sort of human form of teleology could come come about or could arise. Right? You know, if you're on one side of this clear split then you can begin okay well i'm on the good i'm with yeah
1: the hero i'm the
0: hero right so i ha- i'm heading in the right direction and sort of uh i guess lie to yourself in creating some form of personal uh empirical teleology from the below if you wanted to use that language and do you think that that uh, a i guess you know very tricky words but like an authentic openness and authentic um passivity completely overhauls and alters that idea of spiritual achievement or spiritual teleology or spiritual goal in some sense that once you enter into that really you've entered into spontaneity so you have to give up a lot of what it is to that that we've always considered to be human you know aims goals purposes etc yeah
1: i i do yeah i i think i agree with that although the absolutist language of completely overhauling is perhaps, again, a kind of dualistic thinking, right? I mean, I'm not yeah. saying I don't do it too, but mm-hmm. but there is that all the time. Um, I think that, but as you say, what happens if one abides with the paradox is that the stories we tell about what it means to be human and what is meaningfully human, more importantly, rather, Um, because what it means to be human can be quite abstract. You could have a Hobbesian view, but what it means to be meaningfully human um, is often uh, put into question in very useful ways that we are defamiliarized by it. So one of the thinkers that I'm very interested in at the moment and I'm thinking with in my current writing is Michael Marder, who is a philosopher of plant thinking, which is a concept he coined to, as he says, vegetalize the Western philosophical canon, and uh, he sees a correlation between what he's doing and what mystics historically have been doing mm-hmm. uh, in their way of partly actually using vegetal analogies a lot, which are analogies of openness and receptivity and, as you say, like a radical kind of passivity. Um, but there are also analogies of uh, being open to the divine, right? And I see that there is a lot of... Um, and kind a of voicing of, uh, of, uh, Posthumanist thinking, essentially, uh, in a lot of what mystics do, and a lot of what the sort of spiritual exercise traditions are trying to do, and so those are the those are the lines that I'm trying to um, draw together, or I, or rather, I feel like I'm watching them converge rather than trying to draw mm-hmm. them together because they they converge pretty nicely on their own. Um, so yeah, I do think that there is a lot of questioning of what it means to be human. I mean, should I give you an historical example from the the work that I write about in the book? Because it's quite a fun. Fun example. Ken,
0: Kendu, I just wanted to touch on the one thing there because I hadn't heard of Mardo and that idea of uh so sort vegetalization of ve- philosophy is actually yeah. is a very interesting idea and it actually it does I can see why it centers itself between effort and grace, because if you take to take the I guess the example of a sunflower which, you know, it's just always going to rotate itself autonomously by the grace of something towards the sun, but at the same time that effort to do so is inherent w- with it, but it's also not like a, it's not willing itself to do that in the sense it's ripping up its roots. So there's that strange in between. Um, but I think I think that's a, a yeah a, a fantastic way to look about it. Look at it. Sorry. Yeah, the historical example.
1: <laughs> no, um, we might we might derail somewhere else now. I like that as Um Yeah, I I love the way when Marder describes plant thinking, he he uses a lot of the language of receptivity and being radical, as in like being rooted, right. Um, and what I particularly like about him is that he doesn't then present plant thinking as the opposite of like animal activity. It's it's this middle. Right. Um, and I think that's what we've we've lost sight of metaphors and stories that can give us that middle Uh in the world around us. And so that's why I think plant thinking is really important. I mean, plants really are like superior creatures in so many ways and their ability to survive and like interact with environments and longevity. I mean, it's, yeah, sort of endless list. Um, Yeah, uh, the the, the historical example, what I was thinking about was just to tie it back to French spiritualism a bit and the book. Um, So Amanda Biron, whom I mentioned, uh, towards the end of his life, he became obsessed by, I said, these these three wheels and how they interact. And at one point in his notes, he he points out that the human being uh the human life is this strange like middle and this isn't a new idea it's it's quite old like the human is in between lots of other things but um he becomes very uncertain when kind of describing what's above and below the human life as to whether there really is any difference between what he sees as as above the human which is the spiritual life so mm-hmm. this like radical openness you know it's it's not me that's willing, but it's something coming to me, and what's below the human, which he sees as the animal life. Mm-hmm. And for him, animal life includes the the, the veg- what someone like Marder would call plant thinking and, and uh, vegetal ontology. And so he has this incredible passage, which I do write a little bit about in the book, and that I'm thinking a bit more with now, which is that uh, he says something along the lines of, above and below, there is no more human life. There's no more kind of willing, um, there's this receptivity, uh, and he implies that the animal and the spiritual merge. right? Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that uh, is a really important moment, I guess, in the history of philosophy mm-hmm. for me uh, that has been overlooked when it comes to what a philosopher, because Biran was practicing spiritual exercises, deeply engaged in introspection and um, different forms of uh, Christian mysticism, And that what what the realization that comes out of that kind of practice is that the human, uh, it's effaced. And it's effaced not just in the direction of something like more than human in the sense of, you know, God, right? Mm -hmm. But that God turns out to be possibly just the animal in you, as it were, the plant in you. Uh, And I I think that's something we we should be uh, considering more in, in our philosophical practice and in metaphysics.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean it's not necessarily a question but it, it, it reminds me of uh, I'm going to assume you've read meditations on the tarot
1: I have a bit but it was a long time ago mm-hmm.
0: so there's I mean there's there's just the the, the meditation on the hanged man who has now gone along his spiritual journey so long that he's now upside down so his feet are rooted to the divine and his head and his reason and his intellect are now on the blow and in the animal realm and he's in this place where he's found you know he's found that means to passivity but i guess to look at the card you realize that that passivity for him comes around with a lot of strenu- strenuous <laughs> effort because he's you know he's hanging by his feet from a tree so it's not exactly easy um so i mean hmm the big the, i guess the big question the difficulty in uh, is is really how do we how do we remain autonomous amidst effort right that's that's the that's the paradox is how can this be Basically, I mean, the, the effort and grace is, is is really a question of how can this be? I mean, of course, we've touched on this before, so I'm, I don't want to repeat myself.
1: <laughs> yeah, autonomy. I think you, yes, how can we remain autonomous in the midst of passivity, perhaps, in the midst of um, how can we have agency, I guess, is is yeah, a way of yeah. storing it. Yeah, I think, you know, autonomy is a model. It's it's all about stories we tell about this thing we experience as agency and that sentence itself is a story. Uh, and it's about trying to tell that story with words that, Are somehow activate something in us, um, that change something about the way we practice. And so uh, those sorts of stories are the ones that we're trying to to tell. And the story of autonomy, so the story that autonomy tells uh, can be helpful in some ways, right? Because there is an aspect of the experience of agency, which is very much one of like, I am willing this. And if I don't will something, then little will happen, right, in my immediate environment. Immediate causality is very much like that. Like if something doesn't move the other thing, it's not going to move at all. Mm -hmm. But if you zoom out, you see that, in fact, the whole earth is moving, right? So something is, in fact, always moving. Um, So the story that autonomy tells often... Uh, takes away attention from the fact that we are interdependent, right? I mean, we don't actually make up our own laws we're not self-legislating. Mm-hmm. We just aren't, right? We're in an ecosystem. And so autonomy is not helpful if you want to think about the ecosystem. So it's a sort of, it's a it's a micro story, but we also have to have a macro story. And, and the drawback with the macro story, if that's all you're focusing on, is that you forget that, in fact, you have agencies and they're independent and they, they do things, you know, without necessarily thinking about the whole, right? Mm-hmm. So we just need stories that have this micro macro, you know, that's something that's there in hermeticism, uh, you know, as um, the biggest. In the small relating to one another and we seem to be very bad at making those kinds of stories or else it is that we're bad at interpreting the stories we have in those ways we like these kind of either or readings we like the hero's story and then we kind of forget that in those heroic narratives like the grail legend in fact there is a lot of interdependency woven into them right mm. so that one of the mystics I um, write about in the book Simon Weil who's uh i think that i've I've spent a lot of time with she's fascinated by the grail legend but for sort of all the opposite reasons to why a lot of the um 19th century um romantic readings uh, uh so kind of lauded it and she likes the grail legend because in one of its versions so she's focusing on on parsifal um the grail can only be reached when it is no longer sought for and when mm. the the knight who is you know, on this quest has completely kind of given up almost uh, and is able to utter spontaneously uh, words of true compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he even fails the first time around. So, so it's uh, it's doubly difficult because he kind of knows what he's supposed to say, uh, and now he has to say it spontaneously. And so um, so for her, the whole sort of quest narrative is is true, but it's 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 usually unhelpfully interpreted as a story about autonomy, when really it's a story about interdependency. Um, and and so yeah, even there, I was shifting either or. Right? It's it's like having those two things together because I think that when we talk about how. Uh, autonomy, or rather agency, can be possible in a world where we we are interdependent, and in a way we are radically passive because we're receptive to everything around us. And as Gilles Deleuze says, one of my one of my um, other formative thinkers that I thought with a lot during my PhD, um, I mean, he he's fascinated by the way in which creation, if you look at like evolution, isn't this kind of active will sort of making things. It's actually Uh, what he calls these these habits or contractions of the environment to its environment. Mm. Uh, And that's how things actually change by just sort of waiting and not really doing very much Mm. in terms of willing anything out of sui generis agency. It's this passive contraction. He calls it the contemplation of by nature of of nature and that's where you get more life and more creativity uh, and and so but and he says there's this fetishization of like the active will uh, in in the Western Canon which has completely obscured that aspect. Uh, so we need these other stories and the plant thinking is one story, um, but the, the the danger of those stories is that they become stories about pure passivity and that's not really what we're talking about either. Um, so agency is one way I think quite good way of storing it. Agency, the word agency, um, but even that has has a lot of activity built into it. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm thinking about different ways of storing it. Plant plant thinking is one way, and mysticism is another with its techniques where you have both meditation and contemplation, both a kind of active and passive way of working, I guess. Um, and yeah.
0: I mean, it's yeah. I can see now why you know you mentioned at the start about bringing in ecology and this connection to, to plant thinking, and I'm thinking back to I mean one of the the few. Um, mystics, you could, you could say that I've read who's who's written of this clear overlap. I mean, Rudolf Steiner's written loads about you know farming and the overlap between spirituality and and mysticism, and he says, look, plants don't get sick, which begs the question, well, what, how, what what's a sick plant then? And he said, well, it means the terrain is sick, it means the whole ecology is sick. The plant itself had this sort of gave over its passivity. And it's only sick because of that. It's not because of its will in that sense. You know, a plant doesn't sort of like push its feet down and uproot itself to move to where the sunlight's better. That whole terrain, which he, I think, when he's talking about manure or even on a very practical level, he calls it like a spiritual stomach. Um, that whole terrain is sick. The whole interdependence that you were talking about is sick. And it, in that sense, it's almost like uh, the the willing, the pure agency, the fetishization of the agency we're talking about would be the equivalent of a plant uprooting itself and like walking off into a better patch of sunlight which is like a ridiculous thing you know the whole um the whole thing you know i mean it sounds so banal but the whole thing has to work together um but in that sense there's sort of like a morbidity because in relation to that passivity that plants have you know when things die when things don't happen to get in the sunlight it's not i wouldn't be understood in the same sense that it would for humans right it's like well they've died but that's just part of like the ecological process that's part of a bigger thing and so you know it's not this sort of almost like human tragedy that that's happened so i'm gonna i've thrown a lot at you there but that would be where i saw the see the connections with the the ecology i don't know if i'm on the right lines at all
1: I like that, I like that, I have to think more about it. Um, yeah, I've not read much Steiner yet. I've, I've looked a bit at his work on plants, which I find interesting, and the way in which he has the spiritual exercise of, of connecting to them, I think is is a kind of, it seems like a a practical application of a lot of what Michael Marder writes about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I I think that really we I mean one of the th- points that Mada brings up a lot, which I think resonates with what you just said, is that uh, we don't have to in fact look to plants only when we think want to think differently and vegetalize our own philosophy in the Western canon, because we are already plant-like in our own bodies. So there are there are things that our bodies do that uh, function on a sort of vegetal basis. So for instance, the way our skin perceives the environment, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't do so voluntarily. I we don't have to do anything for our skin to sense the environment. It's just constantly there, like taking temperatures and like, you know, um being perceptive. And so one of the points he makes is that it's not about saying that plants, I mean I was saying they are superior. They are superior in many ways. Um, But at the same time, we are also plants. And uh, we the same. What Steiner says about plants can be said about human beings, and animals who move across the earth, which is that we have this idea that we are somehow detached from it because we move on it. But if we know that that's not true. I mean, we cannot exist for very long outside of the earth, right? Um, it, and it really is like not very long at all that we can exist and flourish uh, outside of the earth. So. Even we are basically plants right we we don't have the same kinds of roots, but we are rooted um, practically uh, and so seeing ourselves in that connection also uh, you know questions those stories we tell about autonomy and how we're so very different from plants and so on um, but it's also about but understanding where the connections are
0: okay so f- so for you if we were to look back at the sort of very Many people, I guess, would say it's traditional, the, the very traditional great chain of being, rocks, plants, animals, man, angels, archangels, God. Yeah. <laughs> you want to jumble this all up together in sort of a radical, uh, an act of like radical empathy.
1: Radical empathy. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do I want to do with a the, great chain? I the... guess
0: that would be like empathy on behalf of who, right? That would be the question. What do you want to do with a great chain of being?
1: What do I want to do with a great <laughs> chain of being? <laughs> Um, Yeah, the great chain of being is is a good model, I guess, for understanding how everything is interconnected. The drawback of it is that it's a chain, right? And so things are actually quite distant from each other, Mm -hmm. which is not very realistic and not in fact how things are experienced. So it tells one part of its story is quite useful and there are other parts that are less useful. I mean, analogies tend to be like, this is why they multiply where we need many <laughs> because mm-hmm. one is never going to do it um, for our experience. So I think uh, where the great chain of being is useful for some things and not very useful for
0: other things. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So moving to this, just moving to this, uh, the sort of specifics of the philosophers that you're drawing on your text, do you feel um, that, especially with uh, Bergson, do you feel that he's been... Um, misconstrued in some way with respect to philosophy that, that the way you're looking at him is really one of the ways that uh, should, should be a clearer focus and that he's often maybe put into camps where it's like that's not the whole story at all.
1: Yeah, with Bergson, uh, there are two, two different things there, I guess. Um, part of my work on Bergson has been quite dull scholarship I guess Uh, I I drew attention to the fact that he was deeply influenced by stoicism Mm. or a specific kind of reading of stoicism which he also helped to make influential and popular himself and that influenced Ador Um, and this hasn't been so evident in the anglophone reception because the lectures that Bergson gives on stoicism are at the moment only available in French so they've not been translated so some of my work was was about that. And what was interesting there was that it then became very evident that Bergson was a kind of precursor to Ador because he was so interested in the way in which philosophy is this, well, practice, right? I mean, that's what the Stoics emphasize so much that you can't... Philosophy isn't something you just sort of... It's not just a mental exercise. Um, it's something that you do with your whole body as well. Uh, and this is what Bergson was anticipating in these lectures. They're actually quite fascinating because we have the notes. It's not his own, um, his own lecture, but notes taken, very, very uh, assiduous notes. And uh, the, the amount of space given to Stoicism compared to the other Hellenistic philosophies is just remarkable. Like it's kind of twice and triple the length. Um, so, so that's one thing. And I think, yeah, he has been, that has been overlooked the degree to which bergson anticipates the whole movement of philosophy of spiritual exercise has been overlooked and so that was that's part of the kind of spade digging in the history of ideas that I've done in my work um but that also got me onto a kind of counter reading uh in terms of how we interpret that influence because he did influence Ador, and we we know this because Ador talks about Bergson influencing him a lot. Mm-hmm. um and Ador talks about the importance of viewing philosophy as this um effort of the will. I talked about these effort words. and they're words that appear a lot in Bergson's philosophy, not least in his lectures on stoicism, um they kind of trickle into his uh, readings of philosophy as intuition. You know, he has this idea that, on the one hand, we have a kind of everyday sense that is good for surviving, but it's not what we use when we open up to, you know, the world of ideas. And we're then doing something different, and we are exercising this like uh, pure, intense effort that he talks about—the effort uh, of the um, the vital spirit or the élan vital, um, a vital impetus. Uh, and I read that actually as a sort of a distorting influence. So what I see Bergson uh, doing is over-emphasizing effort, basically. Um, now, he's trying to talk about something which I I think he kind of possibly experiences. I don't know what he was really doing practically in terms of his you know spiritual life or whatever, uh, but I think maybe he experienced it as something receptive, but he doesn't describe it in those terms at all. He's talking about mysticism essentially, and this is very clear in his last book on the two... Um, uh, the, the two origins of morality and religion. Um, oh, sorry, uh, the two, What? what is it called? The, anyway, morality and religion <laughs> book, the, the final one. Um, when he's talking about uh, mysticism there, it's very clear that he is thinking about these ecstatic experiences where it's something more than or other than the, the self that comes in. But he still describes it as this effort uh, of, of the spirit, which is really curious, thinking about the tradition. Um, and so I think he's one of the key figures in distorting that. So if you're looking like for reasons like where, where did this all begin in terms of 20th century philosophy? Why do we emphasize effort so much in our presentations of philosophy as spiritual exercise? Mm. Then I think we should look at Bergson. And I don't think we have been looking at Bergson enough. Um, and here's someone like Gilles Deleuze is really helpful. He's a Bergsonian. Mm -hmm. And a vitalist But he was actually really critical of Bergson as well Which is often also not noted um, In some of the kind of more cursory presentations Of Deleuze as a Bergsonian So Deleuze doesn't actually like The way Bergson completely sidelines What I described as this like Passive creativity in evolution And so his account of Bergson's effort Is in fact more nuanced uh, Than Bergson's own Um, Mm -hmm. And so yeah my reading of Bergson two different stories. One is Stoicism really influential. He's an an anticipation of Ador. Um, But on the other hand, for that reason, he's also responsible for a lot of the misreadings, I think, that Ador has when it comes to spiritual exercise.
0: Mm. Yeah, I discussed this with uh, Craig Lundy when we discussed Deleuze's Bergsonism about the fact that a lot of uh, what many people consider Bergsonism now is really they don't realize they're actually speaking about Deleuzean Deleuzean Bergsonism. very, (laughs) Very few people actually go back and everyone just reads it's the little hundred and hundred, I think it's like a hundred pages by Deleuze, you know, to get their grasp on it. And then they're done. So, uh, but <laughs> to be fair to Deleuze, he does a good job. So, um, but it is a different thing. I mean, that's the problem. Um, I guess one, just uh, a final thing, you know, on on talking about these thinkers, I mean, some of these other uh, other thinkers that you do bring in, less so Simone Weil, but uh, Brianne uh, and especially uh, Alain, these are things that really are big influences on many other of the canonical thinkers that we now, um, you know, consistently talking about. I mean, it's a pretty pretty dull question, really, but I mean, do, in a sense, in drawing them in, is it, was this um, an effort on your part to sort of try revitalise discussions about these these people who've somewhat been forgotten? If that's a good question <laughs>
1: that is. i don't think they've been forgotten in the sense of uh, they're still pretty canonical i have to say it's 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 a it's a more an alternative reading of canon but yes my book happens to be the first book in english to look comprehensively at french spiritualism. i not just look at one thinker but sort of try to think about the the movement and the intellectual movement And I say happens to be for a reason, because I didn't call my book French spiritualism and spiritual exercise or something like that, um, because I am very much trying to think with this uh, relationship between effort and grace, an alternative account of what it means to practice philosophy as spiritual exercise, alternative to adores, and to resource that through adores own tradition, i.e. the French one. So I think actually my, my, First motivation was not to look at forgotten thinkers. It was more kind of detective work. If I wanted to tell this story differently, I could just, you know, go back to Augustine, etc., and kind of re- redo the tradition that way. But I was unhappy with that because I wanted to give a genealogical story, not just a logical one. Like the logical one is to take Ador's argument apart and to show alternative ways. But the genealogical one is to show that there are. Um, there, there's a lineage and precedent for why things are interpreted a certain way and that if we look in that lineage we might find our alternative stories um, I think those the pairing the logic with the genealogy I think is useful, I mean I'm not the first one <laughs> um, lots of people have done that before me um, and so that was actually why I came to write about French spiritualism uh, and some of those thinkers are incredibly canonical like Bergson uh, and Simone Weil is actually incred- uh, very popular as well especially amongst um, also uh, like religious um, writers and so on. Uh, and Mendebighan is not very uh, well-known in, in the Anglosphere, and nor is Alan anymore, although he was at one point uh, very popular. Uh, and Ravasson, who is the other thinker that it, I write about, uh, is, is now uh, gaining a, a, a larger readership in English. Um, so yeah, it was actually almost like an accident in mm-hmm. a way that I wrote about French spiritualism.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, is there anything you want to add in about your book that you feel we haven't, I mean, obviously there's a lot more in there for anyone who uh, hopefully will go buy it after this, but is there anything that you want to add in that you feel we've critically overlooked?
1: I don't know. Um, we didn't talk much about ecology uh, and uh, the, the way the book ends, I guess, but we've, we've spoken about the, the way in which this kind of thinking leads to considerations of interdependency, right, uh, mm-hmm. and and autonomy versus ecosystem. So I think we probably got there. The only thing we didn't really th- talk much about, which was the initial conversation that you asked me to imagine, which I love. That question was amazing.
0: Um, yeah, we can we can talk about about, that. Talk about, <laughs>
1: about that. the three okay. persons. No, but just in terms of how it relates to these, you know, very canonical figures, because mm-hmm. it's something which is easily overlooked. The the degree to which Um, philosophers who were interested in practicing or returning their discipline to spiritual exercises to some kind of more uh, embodied um, spiritually cognizant existence however that may you know however they story that to the degree to which they were often interested in in um, either magical practices outright or mystical practices and so on. I find that to be something which we overlook. And I, I have to say, I've sort of overlooked it in my book in the sense that it wasn't the focus, right? I wasn't okay. writing an intellectual history of them in their context, in which case Freemasonry would have been much more important, for instance, um, as, uh, as a backdrop to the 19th century um, in France amongst these these thinkers in particular, mm-hmm. um, one of who was, whom was like Grand Master um, and so on of a lodge, um, and so that's a question which I mean I, I raised that as the the, the conversation context <laughs> in my answer partly because it's something which I'd I'd really like to know in a way more about and uh, that I'm working on also more yeah,
0: at the I see what you mean. So you you see that conversation in relation to effort and grace is really there's a, the 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 answer between those three would be one concerning magic, which is which which is its own very specific thing.
1: Yeah, and, and also. Um, the what i call spiritual technologies Mm. so when i'm writing now about magic i i it is separate distinct i guess distinct but not separate (laughs) is how how i would put it Um, i'm interested in the places where um spiritual exercise traditions like the leolan one uh, and uh, magical practices like the ones we find both in traditional magic and in western occultism where they converge Mm -hmm basically uh and because i think they do (laughs) and part of the the problems that faces something like the kind of current of thinking about philosophy of spiritual exercise is this tendency to sort of separate out certain forms of uh of practice as not somehow belonging um to what's under consideration and i think that um perhaps the. Perhaps sort of telling the story as one about spiritual technologies rather than about like magic or religion or mysticism or philosophy is maybe more useful. Um, certainly, that's what I find when I read the spiritualists is that they are at base interested in these quite te- technical questions about how my effort relates to what is going to be received and so on. And these are questions which are shared um, with you know magical practitioners and occultists and mystics and so on and I, I i find that to be very fascinating um, more than i find the kind of you know let's talk about the history of of practitioners and their kind of you know their debates and so on or the history of philosophy but rather these technical questions of what is actually going on i mean in a sense it's a phenomenological question right um mm-hmm. although i don't really work in that tradition strictly
0: mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a good way to answer on uh, ask the question as well because it does avoid the often uh, habitual sort of academic ostracization of certain things like okay it's magic because it's, it's a whole other thing we're not going to talk you know they're not related and that that way of framing it in terms of magical technologies in the sense of um giving receiving effort will etc seems to be the uh I mean yeah that's the question of sort of mediation between these both these things and as you say as we've been talking about interdependence I mean that's the thing that's developing the relationships between things.
1: Yeah and and to have to understand I mean this comes down to kind of um openness also when we when we read texts that we may not be familiar with or that we've had stories about that put them on the side of like the other, right? And something mm. unfamiliar, um, which is often typically the case with something like magic or even spiritual exercise, even mysticism from a from a strictly kind of dogmatic theological point of view. It's something other, it's something a bit um, not quite uh, rigorous or, you know, whatever story we tell about, we, we put up these sort of fences. I mean, Michel, Michel Le Sortour, who's uh, one of my favorite readers of mysticism, Uh, in the early modern period is very good on this sort of showing how um, mysticism and everything that's kind of vaguely allied with it um, becomes this uh, thing that is colonized essentially by other disciplines, like more rigorous ones, supposedly like philosophy or theology. Um, And that's something which uh, I'm very much thinking with um, and ways in which uh, to do something like theology or philosophy from the point of view of practice typically ends up being a a move that um, in some way has to engage with you know decolonial theory for instance um, and so on so i i mentioned post-humanist theory as well so it it it, it typically leads in that direction which i find to be hugely beneficial <laughs> to the discourse at large
0: mm-hmm. So I mean just to just to quickly touch on it with with that conversation of those three thinkers do you think it would be a discussion at all or would it just result in a séance or some sort of <laughs>
1: result in a séance that would be quite nice. Um well we know that uh Bergson did meet his brother-in-law and that he was not impressed. But that his brother-in-law was was quite excited about the opportunity to meet this, you know, great philosopher and, and so on. Um and yeah, I think there was a lot of uh it Ne- not necessarily mutual incomprehension but certainly a situation where um academic philosophy and was very suspicious of what was going on um on the occult scene and so on and there are so many interesting stories there because of course his sister was was very important there mm-hmm. giving as we were saying like voice and agency to a lot of female practitioners uh, and inspiring them, right? Uh, and what they were doing, I would argue, is perhaps not so very different from what Bergson is is in fact describing, um, but told with completely different stories, different language, um, and also with or without rituals accompanying them. Uh, so I yeah, I, I find that meeting to be really interesting. And I don't know, I, I think it would have been quite acrimonious. I think there would have been a lot of mutual incomprehension. <laughs>
0: Might, it might be a disappointment of uh, a disappointment in relation to like the, 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 a lot of what they would be wanting to discuss is intuitive and can't you know that uh, they can't immediately define it right So many mystics say, look, you have to experience this to understand it So I, I don't know why I'm even writing this book is the general conclusion of a lot of mystics.
1: Yeah or, or just the I think on the other hand, mystics are very good at telling stories. They're the best storytellers. They have these visions, right? I mean, visions are really interesting stories, very gripping, arresting stories, stories that for good or ill can often sway, you know, whole sort of movements in one direction or another. And I think that what we would see with like the Bergson siblings and McGregor Mathers is something of different stories coming at loggerheads right?
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: different models of reality meeting, like, what do you think is going on in this ritual? And 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 so on, two different ways of interpreting it. Um, and I think that that's something which I'm also very interested in the kind of meta perspective, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is that there are these different models that we have and not, I, th- I think the work of um, critical theology or um, critique in general mm-hmm. is not to Carve out an absolute view of reality. Um, because that's a very either or thinking. It implies that all the other views are, are not true. But to see the simultaneity of them. So, the way in which Mandabiran, who is perhaps one of my favorite thinkers um, of all time, and, uh, and I also wrote about him in the book, he has this line towards the end of his life where he argues he's just trying to make clear what he means by these three different lives. the Kind of, he calls it the physical, the human, and the spiritual. And he says that this is... He's not saying that there are actually three lives. Mm. Um, he says that there are three different experiences, and together they form a kind of model. And he likens it to an icon, actually. And I think that might be quite a good way of understanding what what all of these things are, like these philosophies, these <laughs> mysticisms, uh, and what is generated thereby. It's it's not a kind of absolute vision of anything. It's an icon that you can use to look further and to go further. I mean, that's what an icon is. It's a window onto something else, right? I really like that. And I thought for a philosopher to say that about his own work, <laughs> rather than saying, this is my system, he often says things like, you know, that the greatest impediment to a philosopher is to think that there is one system or system thinking in general. Um, and so, yeah, to to be able to do philosophy of spiritual exercise uh, in an icon, the mode of an icon, um, would be something for for the future, I think, not just for individual human beings, but for the planet at large.
0: Is is that, is that what you're working on now with uh, your work with the ecology? Are you working on another book in this domain, but ecology focused?
1: Yeah, I am. So it's it's called Ecologies of Ecstasy. Practicing Philosophy Through Mystical and Vegetal Being. And it is uh, doing very similar in a way to my first book. So a genealogy, partly tracing the convergence between plant thinking and mysticism in uh, the Western philosophical and spiritual canon, um, and then into focusing on the early modern period, hmm. and then into more contemporary thinkers, including Gilles Deleuze, uh, and so on. Yeah.
0: When will that be ready? Or is that the question I shouldn't ask?
1: You shouldn't ask that. No, <laughs> I shouldn't <then>. ask. <laughs>
0: I'll leave it be. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing it in the uh, the future. Um, but yeah, Simone, that seems like a good place to finish up. So, um, Simone Cotva, thanks very much. And before I f- forget, actually, yeah, we can find your book, um, Effort and Grace on the Spiritual Exercise of Philosophy, It'll be on the Bloomsbury website. And uh, many other online bookstores as well. So I'll be sure to put the links in the below. But uh, yeah, it's been great. And thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.